My name is Andy Blow. I am the founder and CEO of a company called Precision Fuel and Hydration. We're based out of the UK, but we're a, a small global business and we specialize in working with athletes in loads of different sports, but a, a real particular interest for us is endurance sports and trying to help people personalize, individualize their fueling and hydration to get the best out of their performance. Uh, my, my background was I studied sport and exercise science, but I think I learned most of what I know about fueling and hydration the hard way by making mistakes as a as an athlete so it's a bit of academic background a bit of personal experience and then I retired from doing sports seriously although I still do a bit now I, I retired about 10 or 15 years ago and the last 10 or 15 years I've learned a load from working with some amazing athletes all over the world so yeah that's a, a little potted history of where I got to where I am now. Awesome. Let's talk about what you've learned over the years, because if anyone goes to your Instagram profile for precision or whatever, you see all these different um, like infographics of people with various sweat rates, sodium loss, et cetera. So like, what would be the benefit of knowing that specifically versus kind of winging it? Because I feel like specifically in the ultra running world and like long distance cycling, it's just kind of like, well, I'll just drink when I'm thirsty, eat whenever. But like, there's not a lot of specificity to it where you guys are very much like, this is your, your salt loss and blah, blah, blah. So like, can we kind of go into that and the reasons why like knowing those details can be so important and can improve your performance definitely i think when when you get involved in what in any new topic where you where you don't have a lot of knowledge it can always seem quite confusing and quite daunting because especially in a topic like sports nutrition there is loads of information out there not all of it is relevant not some of it is not even correct it's coming at you from every angle there's 10 different people all have 10 different opinions on a subject. And when you walk into that environment as a, as a novice, say, as a, as a new athlete or an athlete that's moving up distances, it's very, very difficult, I think, to kind of cut through the confusion and cut through some of the BS that's out there and like boil it down to what really matters. And I think one of the things that I learned first as an athlete, not having access to great information and then as someone who's supporting athletes and working with athletes is that what you need to do is, is try and be a filter for that for people and boil it down to the fundamentals and the fundamentals when you're an endurance athlete during an activity, you essentially need really three things. You need carbs or you need calories and usually in the form of carbohydrate predominantly to fuel the activity that you're doing because there's only a finite amount of glycogen stored in the body. You need water if you're sweating and you also need sodium or electrolytes with that depending on how much you're drinking and how much you're sweating and honestly beyond that if you get the amount of carbs the amount of fluid the amount of salt right you can go a very very long way and if you get those three things about right you'll perform brilliantly all, all of the things being equal and that doesn't mean that they're the only things that matter in nutrition broadly nutrition is a huge topic but i think what we try and do is help people focus on the fact that knowing your numbers for those three factors is probably one of the biggest things you can do to unlock better performance when you're doing an endurance event yeah definitely and like i've i've noticed that as well and like i guess a little like just take a step back like i did do a, a sodium or sweat test with one of your athletes in utah and that was so interesting to me because um, I think it was Jeff Browning or Hayden Hawks, who is one of your athletes, was telling me about it. And like, I didn't really understand it, honestly. Like, I just kind of assumed like, oh, you're taking some sort of drink and it's like, it's fine. But like, when you look at like the ratios of sodium, it's like most of them don't have very much. Like an easy one would be like Gatorade or something. It has like 
like nothing in it really it's just a bunch of sugar water which is fine whatever that's what you want but like as far as replacing sodium it doesn't really do the trick and even like a lot of other like actual like quote-unquote like running or car-based drinks for cycling or running whatever like don't really have that much sodium in them so it's interesting to find your product that has such a high amount but also a very precise amount of sodium in there yeah that that really came from the fact that when i had a sweat test going back 15 or 16 years ago i found out that my sweat sodium was super super high so i lose about 1800 milligrams of sodium in every liter of sweat which is about double what the average person loses and then I did exactly what you've described there and looked at the packets of sports drinks like Gatorade and all these others. And most of them have about four or 500 milligrams of sodium in them. And that's actually probably an adequate level of replacement for people who are doing shorter activities or people who don't sweat as much. But I needed more like a thousand or 1500 milligrams of sodium for every liter that I sweat out when I'm doing a long hot event. And there was just absolutely nothing that was available. So to, to, to sort of um, combat that when I was competing, I would just take lots of salt tablets. I would take a, a prescribed ratio of salt tablets with water and that really helped my performance in the heat. But we figured when we started the company that actually it would be really useful to have drinks that were graded differently. So we do a drink at 250 milligrams a litre, we do one at 500, we do one at 1,000 and we do one up at 1,500. And what we found over the years is that the kind of standard stuff just doesn't cut it for them. Yeah, exactly. And like, that was kind of my issue and kind of why I started deep diving into this is like, like I would take like whatever and like nothing really work. And then once I did the test, I found out that my, my sodium loss was 1221 per liter, which is, is relatively high. And then like, once I started like working on that and trying to be as precise as possible, it was really cool to see like how much, how much faster I recovered and like, I can go run like in, in the heat and basically feel pretty good. I still lose a lot of sodium, obviously, but I'm able to replace that for the most part. And just my, my runs just got a lot better. Yeah, definitely. I, I found exactly that for me. I was an athlete who typically would perform pretty well in cold conditions or cool conditions. And then the difference between me and cool conditions and me and hot conditions was, was like night and day. It was, I was awful in the heat cramping you know hypernatremia i was often in the medical tent at the finish of a long event and it it definitely got to the point where i would fear racing in the heat i just didn't i didn't want to do it but once i understood that this was the major problem i wouldn't ever say it became really easy to race in the heat but it was it was way way better i felt like i could actually execute to a level that i could or close to what i could in in cool based on how how fit i was at the time rather than having to just have this artificial limiter on my performance. So I think for those of us, and, and you're heading towards that category of people who do lose quite a lot of sodium in their sweat, it's a really useful piece of information to find out if you can do one of these tests. Yeah, exactly. And so, so I guess kind of um, base or touching off of that, let's talk about just hydration in general. And like, so there's like your salt loss or your sodium loss per liter of sweat, which is genetic if, I, if I'm right on that, but then also like your, actual sweat rate can change based off like your fitness genetics and um like temperature conditions right yeah so everyone everyone is pretty aware that different people sweat different amounts you can sit next to someone in a in a gym both on spinning bikes one of you can be dripping and the other one can barely be sweating at all but you can both be working really hard and some of that quite a bit of that is just genetic some people just sweat more than others 
but to your point when you, you you do adapt as you get fitter so generally fitter people sweat more than unfit people which sounds counterintuitive but it's because when you push your core body temperature up your body has to offload more heat to the environment and so it learns to sweat more efficiently to do so and sweat rate is is the other half of that sweating equation you've got your sweat concentration how much electrolyte you lose and then that's obviously multiplied up by your sweat rate and the the sum of those two figures determine your net fluid and sodium losses and what we do with athletes is we try and figure out what their sweat rate is what their sweat sodium is the duration of an activity a given activity they're doing and then you can work out you know quite quite approximately quite usefully what their rough magnitude of fluid and sodium loss is going to be and then you can start experimenting with different levels of replacement to see what their gut can handle what they respond best to and then and then that can inform kind of what goes into a strategy before you go into an event and i guess thinking about that then like um like years ago i started experimenting doing keto like just doing ketogenic diets like just not like consistently but like months on and then months off type thing and like initially when i started it like i would just get extremely bad leg cramps like at night specifically and i was living in phoenix at the time as well so like all my runs were in the summer and super hot so i was like oh maybe that's part of the issue and i'm sure it like impacted it greatly but like how do carbohydrates affect cramping and just like your fluid loss? Because when you, when you initially start keto, you lose a lot of urine, you're peeing a lot and lose a lot of water weight. So does that affect yeah. like, yeah, I guess let's talk about carbs and hydration, I guess, is the question. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's an interesting one that we learned a lot about once we started producing. So we started producing our electrolyte tablets that have essentially close to zero calories in them. That was the first product that we made. And as well as athletes buying them, we found that a lot of people who were just generally following keto diets started buying them as well. And in under further investigation, started to realize that, yeah, that's because when you go onto a keto diet, you start to, in the first few days and weeks, you do rinse through your muscle glycogen and obviously you're not replacing it. So you're losing glycogen from the body and every molecule of glycogen holds with it two or three molecules of water. So your total body water levels drop. And what we found and what a lot of people have anecdotally realized is that if you take a lot of extra salt or sodium with fluids when you're on a keto diet, it helps you to retain more fluid, especially in the early stages when you're adapting. And that can help improve recovery, improve performance in the heat, because otherwise your total body water levels are just reduced. So conversely, it's kind of the opposite when athletes go into really long endurance events and we encourage them to carbohydrate load in the last few days your carbohydrate stores increasing also in, increases your water storage capacity by a bit. And as you, as you burn through that glycogen in the event, that water gets released and some of that becomes available metabolically. So it kind of acts as a bit of a, a secondary small reservoir of additional hydration. So this, there is a, a very strong interplay between carbohydrate stores in the body and fluid stores in the body. That's really interesting because and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of seems like if you're going to be in a hot environment, say like you're racing in Kona or maybe bad water or something, these long, hot events that like, you're probably not going to want to be in a ketogenic state because you're potentially losing more fluid, right? Yeah, that's one valid point. I think the other, but the other major point is just that although there's lots of different reasons why people might find it beneficial to follow a low carbohydrate diet in general, the evidence points quite strongly towards the fact that higher carbohydrate diets are what support 
you know, better aerobic endurance. There is definitely there is definitely a bit of a question mark over some of the really, really long events where potentially a high because you're moving a quite a bit slower, the contribution of of energy from fat can be higher. But for the majority of athletes, the majority of the time, I think the pendulum has swung. It swung towards this idea in some people's eyes anyway, of low carb, high fat for a while, but it's definitely moved back towards more and more athletes taking more and more carbs, especially if you want to move fast. And the interesting thing for me in say ultra running now is, I mean, we, we um, obviously bumped into you at Western States this year. And that was the first time I've been up close with a world-class hundred mile event. And it was impressive to see just how fast the people towards the front end of that race are moving. And they are, in order to do that, they're burning a lot of carbohydrate energy and refueling with a lot of carbs. These are not people who are ticking over on like easy fat burning. They're dropping five high five, low six minute miles at some point. It's like, it takes a lot of energy to do that. Yeah, definitely. And it's always like Western States, for example, is, is hot. Like this year wasn't that warm uh, compared to most years, but generally it's, it's super hot. And like, maybe it's hot for you guys coming over from, from the UK, but uh, it was like historically a fairly cool year, especially the the start of the first 50 K or so. Um, but I guess like thinking about carbs and like how do carbs impact cramping? Cause I was listening to a, a trainer road, like a cycling podcast, like maybe a couple of years ago now. And like, I don't know how old this show was and the science may be outdated and they may have changed their stance on it now, but they were talking about how like in a lot of like longer events that they were doing that they were suffering cramping and that obviously some sodium played a role in it, but like, as they added in more carbs, their, a lot of their cramping issues went away and they're able to recover faster for the following day. So can you kind of talk a bit about like carbs and cramping and also how that can affect your recovery and maybe performance into the next day, whether it's a workout or like a stage race or something. Yeah. Cramping is an interesting one because it's a, it's a really controversial topic in sports medicine because you, you, people have very, very polarized opinions on it. I think my opinion on cramping as someone who suffered from it a lot during my athletic career was that I definitely felt there was a very, very strong association between electrolyte imbalance and um, fluid, fluid and electrolyte imbalance and cramping for me, because w once cramping was an early sign for me that my hydration was not on point and that my electrolyte supplementation wasn't on point. And when I learned to manage that better, I got way, I got way less cramping and I still suffer way less cramping now when I get that side of things right. So, you know, essentially for me, it's relatively simple in that I take more sodium with the fluid that I'm consuming and I get way less cramps. And I know a lot of athletes have got similar anecdote like that, but there's a school of thought that cramping is or can also be caused by muscular fatigue or fatigue of the nervous system. And that's often been seen as a competing theory with the electrolyte dehydration theory. But in actual fact, I think it's really hard to separate those two things because when, when you're suffering fatigue and also to your point about carbohydrates, glycogen depletion, this is usually something that's happening late on an in an event or several hours into an event when you're also potentially exposed to dehydration or electrolyte imbalance or fluid overload or whatever it is. So picking those individual things apart and saying, oh, well, when I do this, it, it goes away. Or when I do this, it doesn't. It's really hard to do. I think that there's probably a stronger research and a stronger anecdotal link between fluid and sodium replacement and reducing cramping than there is with 
pure carbohydrates but also i but i've also heard anecdote from athletes around the fact that when they get their carbohydrate supplementation right that obviously reduces fatigue and that that leads to less issues including cramping so i think it's all part of that mix i think probably has a little bit to do with your individual physiology as much as it does to to whether i don't think there's categorically one of those three things that makes a difference universally if that makes sense yeah definitely like i've i've i don't know i guess i'm just 100 agreeing with you because i feel like people try to like focus on one thing like it's only sodium or it's only fatigue it's only heat but it seems like it's very multifaceted and like maybe we don't understand exactly the mechanism for why cramping happens but like it's probably because you're going too hard losing a lot of sodium underhydrated like all these factors are playing into one thing right Definitely. Yeah. There's um we the, the the um we've got a knowledge hub on our website which has articles about different topics. And I think I'm right in saying, certainly when I looked not long ago, the what the article that we've got about cramping, it's a bit of a monster, it's four or five thousand words long, but that's probably the most read article on our website. That's something that you want to link to in the show notes for this. If anyone's sort of if, if talking about cramping has got their interest, that might be worth doing. Yeah, definitely. I'll definitely link to it because I think it's just an issue that everybody deals with for the most part. Like, maybe not everybody, but when people do deal with it, it becomes a, a major issue. We we do a cramping survey to our database every year and consistently get get a return on it saying that over 80% of people suffer from cramping at some point. Now, obviously, some people suffer with it a lot and some people it's very infrequent, but it is something which most athletes can relate to. There's actually very few athletes, I think, that have never experienced cramping. Yeah, I'm extremely jealous of those people because it used to just like wreck all my events. I'd go in fairly fit and then just hate it. <laughs> I was like, I almost quit running at one point because of it. Yeah, you and me both. It was like the absolute pain of my career, really. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I guess thinking of just how awful cramping can be, um, I, I'm also, I'm a caffeine addict. I'm sure most people are it's super common, <laughs> like whatever, but, um, like I've, I've noticed that when I consume more caffeine that like I won it's a diuretic and I'm peeing a little bit more, but I feel like my cramping intensifies. I don't know if that's just like me correlating it in my brain or if there are any data supporting that. So like, does caffeine affect cramping and or hydration or like what are your guys' thoughts on on caffeine because you do have a product that has 100 milligrams of caffeine in it yeah we do so on the positive side for athletes caffeine is is a proven ergogenic aid so it can improve performance in most people it's a stimulant so it affects the brain and enables you to feel less fatigue but it can also affect the muscles and the metabolism as well in positive ways because it's a stimulant so it we put it in our in some of our gels because there are enough athletes out there and i'm one of them you know we that who who can use caffeine tactically during exercise to boost performance and, and an interesting thing about taking caffeine during exercise is often the, the diuretic effect is kind of neutralized because your body's releasing hormones that that stop you from peeing so much anyway so you don't really suffer the same sort of diuresis you might do if you had caffeine at rest to your point about feeling like if you're drinking more coffee and the diuretic effect and then that leading to more cramping, my personal experience of that is really that if I have you know a couple of coffees a day, which is the norm for me, I'm fine, fluid balance is fine, you know, the diuretic effect is small but manageable, and it doesn't kind of lead me to become dehydrated. But when I fly over to the US, as I do quite frequently, and then go straight into doing days of work and being jet lagged and having to stay up and function when I'm 
in the wrong time zone, I'll often drink a lot more coffee because it just feels like, you know, you're reaching for something that's going to help. And actually that, that often leads me to suffer more cramping at night. If I, one thing I love to do, like you mentioned Phoenix, I go to Phoenix quite a bit for baseball spring training in February. There's all those, you'll know, there's some great outdoor swimming pools and stuff. So after a day of working, I'll go and find somewhere with a lap pool, do a few laps, but the amount of times that I end up suffering with cramp, if I'm tired over drinking coffee dehydrated it just seems to be a recipe for it which i just don't suffer with at home which is really weird so i think there is something in that but i think if you if you use caffeine if, if you drink caffeine normally in a in a way which you're habituated to i think your body adapts and it's not such a problem interesting so i, I guess that's just more of an opinion question but do you think that like i say if somebody isn't used to consuming caffeine like say their average is zero milligrams per day then they go race and consume, say, maybe like 400 milligrams. Do you think they're going to be more likely to cramp because of maybe overexertion or maybe the diuretic effect? I don't know. I don't know directly. And I haven't got a lot of, you know, I wouldn't say I've got any direct experience of that because my attitude generally towards if you don't use caffeine at all normally is, is probably not to mess with it in a race. I know people do. And I think that it's not implausible that that could that could cause more of a problem because your body's just not habituated to it. Cause I mean, I know that years ago, this theory was very prominent that you had to come off caffeine before races to really feel the boost. And I used to abstain from caffeine in the week before a race, which was horrid, you know, and then cause you have the come down basically, and you're trying to manage through it and try not to walk anywhere near a cafe where you smell coffee because it would drive you insane. And then you'd have, and you definitely felt more revved up on it on the day, but how much of that was psychological versus physiological, I don't know. And I know now that the majority of recommendations that you read and and certainly the recommendation we follow is that we don't recommend people come off it at all because those kind of come down effects are often worse than the small perceived gain you get on the day. So I would say, you know, I always say to athletes, if you're going to, if you're going to taper your caffeine a little bit in the build up to a race, maybe slope off it a tiny bit, but then, you know, just follow your normal routine because like anything, there is, there is some wisdom in the nothing new on race day mentality. And I think that extends to what you eat and drink specifically. Yeah, I would 100% agree with that. So it's kind of jumping over a little bit to more of like, I guess, nutrient density. Like obviously when you're, you're racing or whatever you're not really concerned with like the, the nutrient quality of like certain foods like you're not i don't know whatever eating vegetables or whatever while you're racing probably but like there are a lot of products out there like hydration products that have a lot of different like micronutrients and vitamins and stuff in them whereas like it seems like um like precision is just simply sodium so is there a reason why you guys focus so much on sodium versus say magnesium or calcium or potassium yeah mainly just because sodium is the one you lose vastly more of in your sweat than anything else during the the usual time period of most events even ultra endurance events you can't sweat out enough calcium magnesium even potassium a major problem but you can lose enough sodium so the products that we make sodium we do have base amounts of potassium calcium and magnesium in there because you all amounts them in their sweat and there's certainly no evidence against replacing them during exercise there's not a huge amount of evidence for replacing them but it's it's an approach that you know seems to work for a lot of people is having a small amount of those in there like a, a basic amount and the reason that sodium is the predominant 
electrolyte in your sweat is because your sweat comes from your blood plasma and your blood plasma is very rich in sodium. Um, whereas in your, and that's, so your extracellular fluid is rich in sodium, whereas your intracellular fluid inside the cells is rich in potassium. So that's why you see people losing so much sodium and not a lot of potassium. When we take sweat samples, when we started out, we used to, we used to measure um, quite a few different electrolytes in sweat, but, but very soon realized and the literature backs this up that the difference in um, sweat losses of potassium, calcium, magnesium between people is relatively small, but the difference in sodium is massive. So that's why we tend to focus on that. It's not because the others aren't important. They're all critical for healthy functioning, but when it comes to replacing sweat losses, sodium is the one that you lose the most of. Uh, and, and to my earlier point about kind of keeping things simple, we want to keep that messaging as simple as possible. And, and I stand by the fact that I think if people replace adequate amounts of fluid, sodium and carbs during the racing window, that's going to help you to perform at your best. Like you need to eat a balanced diet and you need to get lots of other nutrients and fiber. And obviously you need macros like fat and protein and those kind of things to support great health. But they're not necessary like during the exercising window. They're kind of superfluous. And if anything could lead to more chances of GI distress. I think that's why we're seeing the ultra running space is interesting because it definitely used to be that, that there was this perception at least that, that people in the in ultra running events survived on like burritos and pizzas and cans of Coca-Cola. And it was kind of the anti-sports nutrition thing. But I saw at Western States this year, because you're really embedded in the scene a lot more is all of the, the fast people now in ultra running events are existing almost exclusively on like energy gels, sports drinks, energy chews, that kind of thing. They may in long races, they may supplement those with one or two extra real foods, but really the core of what they're taking in comes from simple sports nutrition, because that's the easiest for the body to handle. And it makes it easiest for them to hit, their critical numbers with and keep track of it because if you just grab a bunch of bananas and some you know some um, chocolate and these working out on the fly how much carbohydrate you're taking in and how much you need per hour is very very difficult to do and with with people being quite precise now about how much they want to hit there's no the sports nutrition isn't magic in and of it, it itself it's got no magic ingredients but what it is it's very it's, it's very convenient, easily digestible and very sort of dose orientated. You know, if you pick up a gel that says 30 grams of carbs in it, it's going to have 30 grams of carbs in it. Simple. Um, so I think that's where the sport's kind of going, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I think as ultra running grows up, you could say like it becomes a lot faster and people become a lot more precise with things. Like we, um, I did an interview with Tom Evans who won this year at States and like he was very dialed with everything like the week leading up like his carb intake, every meal, every timing on everything was very dialed. And during the race, it was specifically this many carbs an hour and this, this, and that. And like, say he was running into an aid station like he would dump his bottles. So that way he could like basically stay on his exact intake during the race. So he wasn't like maybe drinking, I don't know, 45 grams of carbs an hour and the next hour, 175. It was very, just like exactly whatever the number was the whole time. And I thought that was really fascinating. And, and I think you are correct too, that like, like when I started running um, ultra specifically, like they're always talking about like, oh, like at a 50K, eat pizza, eat this. And it's like, I tried that and I felt like crap, obviously. <laughs> but it seems like as the sport evolves, it, like people have gone away from that. Cause you're not going to run like a, like a 320, like 50K eating pizza. Like, it doesn't make any sense. 
No, it's we we work a lot in professional cycling, and I think the there's a big parallel actually because the the duration of events is often quite similar, you know, to ultra running. The guys are, are riding for four, five, six, seven hours or more, and it used to be that when the team put together the the musettes, the little bags that they give out with uh, for food on the events, they would have lots of them and still occasionally they do but now the majority of the nutrition is coming from gels bars and drinks or gels chews and drinks should i say not even bars so much because they recognize they just want simple easily calculable amounts of carbohydrate fluid and sodium and then they work really hard to provide massive variety and really good sources of whole food nutrition outside of the racing window but in the racing window it's like yeah it's not little slices of pizza and rice balls and stuff so much anymore even though that's what they were doing 15 20 years ago yeah exactly i think that is like an important point that like simply because you're having simple carbs during a workout or a race doesn't mean that should be your nutrition for for the day like just eating gels all day is not going to be adequate for anything right absolutely not except for a a (laughs) diagnosis of early type 2 diabetes probably (laughs) exactly I'm actually wearing a, a glucose monitor right now. And it's really interesting. Like if I have like to say, I'm not, not that I'm going to eat gels. It's like normally if I have some candy or something to see how high my, my blood will spike outside of training. And if I'm on a run or something and I have a gel or drink mix, like, yeah, there's a little bit of a spike there, but it's not, it's very well-rounded versus like, if I'm just stationary, it's just like, bam, bam, up and down. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're, you know, you're utilizing, you've, you've got, the ability to utilize some of that sugar as it's coming in, it's being shuttled out to where it needs to go as opposed to just kind of sitting there and requiring a whole injection of insulin from the body to then plummet it back down again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I guess thinking of like simple carbs and then like also nutrition and stuff, like I know like in cycling multi-day events are huge and running. Yeah. There are like stage races and things. So like how, I don't know, I guess the question would be like, how do you even like properly fuel during a, a multi-day race during the race but then afterwards as well because you're not just eating gels and drink mix after no i think what it comes down to with well so with the cycling teams we work with because the the amount of work that they do is very quantifiable they have power meters and heart rate monitors and stuff on the bike so they can work out very accurately what a rider's total energy burn has been and they they try to get to this kind of like net zero figure each day where they replace as much carbohydrate fluid sodium on the bike as they can to keep the riders as well topped up and performing right to the end of a stage and then the amount of carbohydrate and things that they add to their meals afterwards tends to be to a degree dictated by what that deficit is so it'll be obviously more on a a bigger day where they've burnt through more energy and and less on a, a shorter day and um I think the way most of them achieve it, like we saw a, when we went to the Tour de France this year, we definitely saw a lot of the riders loading up. They're eating, they're eating lots of veg and good sources of protein and stuff, but they're supplementing it with a lot of white rice because that's a really simple, easy, digestible form of carbohydrate. And the amount of that, that they're having is really tailored to their to their size and energy expenditure. So it's it's quite a science. It's not some of the riders, you know, and the, but the interesting thing for me is like some of the riders still do it very intuitively. They basically choose their portion sizes and they work off how they feel. Other riders at, at the Lotto um, camp, and we, we work with that team very closely, they have a set of scales at the 
at the table and the riders it, it didn't appear to me the riders were mandated that they weighed their food but quite a few of them did quite a few of them were working out how much of x y and z they were putting in they were weighing it all because they were obviously working to some kind of premeditated formula for how much they needed to replace so a lot of thought goes into it but i think they the priority is definitely glycogen restoration you know you you will in a even in a moderate stage race day you're going to burn through a lot of your glycogen stores so i think a lot of the priority goes on to good a good pre-exercise meal to top your glycogen stores up especially in the liver because you've been sleeping overnight and your liver's been circulating glucose to keep your brain happy the muscles are probably okay as much as you can during the stage to keep topped up but then it's a case of like aggressively refueling afterwards in order to make sure you're not starting the next day with slightly depleted glycogen stores because although you might cope okay with that one day to the next day three four five it can get really ugly if you've if you've got behind yeah definitely like i i definitely dabble in the low carb world i'm not like against high carb or low carb or anything like i i see benefits in like, I guess the positives of both sides of the camp, but it's interesting when like, I talked to a lot of people like, Oh, well, I did my, my run fasted today. I'm like, Oh, that's great. You did your short run fasted, but then they don't need any carbohydrates again. And then again, and again, and eventually they get super depleted. And I think it's important to realize that you do need to top those things off and like, not just always do everything fasted for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think that's a really good point because I'm a bit like you in that I, I probably preach more of the high carb type, mantra but that's that's because i get asked a lot of questions about in race or in in training fueling and but i've dabbled and did used to dabble with some of the lower carb stuff as well and found found some benefits and i think particularly for for people who aren't training as much you know i i used to train 20 hours a week like a proper athlete and now i probably train five or six hours a week and so i'm way more cautious about my carbohydrate take around training now because otherwise if i ate the amount of carbs i used to eat when i trained 20 hours i would weigh like 250 pounds you know it it would not it would not be healthy so i think there's there's a big we i guess it's a bit like anything when you if if we're talking you know to amateur athletes or kind of people who are quite serious about it but not professional in an elite level there's a lot of obsession with what the elites are doing like elites are running 150 miles a week elites are eating 130 grams of carb an hour and, uh, and it's almost like those are things we should aspire to do and and actually it's like well the reason they're eating 120 130 grams of carbs an hour is because they are running 150 miles a week and they are running at probably two or three minutes a mile faster than the rest of us and that sort of thing so you're not really comparing apples with apples there and what's appropriate for someone who is pushing the boundaries of what their body can do versus those of us that are fitting training and competing into a normal lifestyle is is very very different and so i i'm always fascinated by and obviously get to work with these athletes that are really pushing the limits and pushing the, the high amounts of everything but don't necessarily always think well that's not that's not completely transferable onto the the rest of the population who are doing this at their own level yeah exactly like just because like i don't know someone can run like a, a seven minute miles recovery pace for example like that might be your tempo pace or something and so like just because so and so is doing it doesn't mean that you should be doing the same yeah absolutely like i, I found that for me, one of the biggest, because you, you mentioned wearing a, a glucose monitor, like I wore one for quite a while over the last couple of years to, to try and you know learn a bit more about 
what I needed and, and definitely found that, you know, it was, it was super useful seeing the difference in, you know, so the, the, as just one example, one of the things I learned was I train best and most frequently either first thing in the morning or sometimes later in the evening, but majority first thing in the morning, I very, very much struggle with training in the middle of the day. But sometimes I have to, because if I've taken the kids to school and missed the morning run or whatever, then sometimes I want to get out at lunchtime. But I used to sh- suffer horrible like glucose dips and that kind of thing in those runs. And I soon learned that basically what I need to do if I'm going to run at lunchtime is I need to eat my lunch after I've run, but I need 15 minutes before I go out the door. And if I do that, my gl- blood glucose profile is lovely and stable and that. But if not, not all the time, but quite a lot of the time, I can suffer a real dip for whatever reason, you know, during the middle of the day, if I try and run like that. Uh, I think it's probably because you, if you're working quite hard in the morning, your brain and you're, you're burning a lot more, even though you sat at a desk, you're burning a lot more glucose than you think and probably start that run a bit depleted. But, you know, that's the kind of lesson that you learn if you start paying attention to these things and modifying your approach and, Um, and it wouldn't have been something I would have ever thought about if I hadn't have stuck one of those glucose monitors on. Yeah, it's it's been really interesting learning one because you can see like how certain foods affect your blood glucose so much than how like either being stationary or active or whatever. And like also then how you feel too, like say you feel really low and you check your levels, you're like, oh crap, like I feel terrible or maybe the opposite. And it's pretty fascinating, but I think it can also kind of become like a detriment in some instances where you become very myopic where like, okay, like I'm only going to eat this because it's not going to raise my blood sugar and say, well, what about these other things? Like there's so many like things that go into your health. It's not just your blood sugar. It's like a very important part, but it's also like, there's a million other things that can affect your health. And it's, it's pretty fascinating. Like I'm kind of obsessed with it. <laughs> I, I definitely also learned that alcohol, you know, brings your blood glucose level down significantly, or it did, for, it did for me. And I've heard a lot of other people say the same, which isn't necessarily positive reinforcement that, that everything that brings you down is good. Yeah. Eat a bunch of sugar and have some alcohol and you'll uh, not be diabetic, right? Laps it out, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's talk about like training your gut then, because uh, when we were talking about like these people eating like that many carbs and like, obviously like when you're like, you're running a lot or cycling a lot, like you have a lot of volume and intensity. So you're gonna be eating more, but like, is it possible to train your gut? Cause like generally I do like 60 ish grams of carbs an hour during a workout or a race or something, but like, say I wanted to do 120, is there a way to train my gut for that? Or is it just kind of like a set level? Yeah. I think the, the generally accepted wisdom these days is that people can train their gut. So whatever level, and everyone seems to have like with most physiological parameters, some people seem to be immediately very comfortable with a high level of tolerance. Other people start lower, but most people can go up from wherever their starting point is. So like, like anything, you, you just need to increase the amount that you're taking in over a period of time and do it in a sympathetic way. So you don't suddenly double what you're taking in. You, you, you put a small 10, 15% increment on and then try and replicate and try and push forward. And when you reach a level of discomfort, either then you have to sit at that for a while and then push through, or maybe you reach a ceiling. Um, But we've seen that people who could previously only take 30 or 40 grams an hour can work their way up to tolerating 70 or 80, 90 grams an hour, even with the right sort of, with the right sort of encouragement. It just, it just takes a bit of time. Most of the gut training protocols that people have written about seem to look at a period of about six to eight weeks before a race. If you want to really increase 
your tolerance for carbohydrate. And I would say anecdotally that that fits with my experience of working with athletes, that if you start six or eight weeks out, normally at that point, you've got quite a few big training sessions, which are the best times to train the gut because you can simulate the pace and the, the stress of the race to a certain extent. And then you you start out taking in what you're comfortable at tolerating and then just, just nudge it up each week. One thing which I've seen in some protocols, which I also like, and I don't think is always widely practiced, is let's say you were aiming to take 90 grams an hour because that's one of the that's kind of a high amount. It's not a super high amount, but it's one, it's it's definitely a high amount, and it's probably higher than a lot of runners are currently taking. If you wanted to take 90 grams, the suggestion is that you push all the way up to 100 or 110 in training and top out at that if you can a couple of weeks out before the event, but then you come back down again for the race because race day often brings a lot of nervousness, a lot of extra stress. You might, it, you're going to push harder. You're probably going to go longer. It might be hotter. You might sweat more and become more dehydrated. So by, by not pushing up to your absolute limit, but by coming just back off the limit, you kind of give yourself a bit, a bit of headroom, which I thought was a really useful idea. Yeah. That's interesting. I've never thought about doing that before because at least there are a lot of, there's a lot more variables and a lot more stress in a race versus just showing up to your local trail that you, or whatever track that you run all the time. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And I think the other thing to mention is like, don't get too obsessed with whatever the number is because if the ultimately is always about performance, like if, if you perform well on an amount of energy intake, yeah, if that's really low, it might be intriguing to to play around with pushing it up a bit to see if that has a positive effect on your performance. But if it doesn't, it doesn't mean that more is always going to be better. Like as a rule, I would say runners probably don't fuel as well like for like with cyclists of a similar level and that sort of thing. And I think that's because it's a cultural thing within running and it's also a practical thing because it's more difficult to fuel when you're running than it is cycling. Cyclists have always been brought up on having three massive pockets in their jersey and a bottle on their bike. And typically, even from a young age, you'll go out and ride for two or three hours. So you need to learn to fuel and hydrate properly. Runners, you might you might well not run for more than 90 minutes, years and years of your early running career so you don't have to fuel and hydrate so you don't get habituated to it and then it seems really it seems really difficult and i think that that makes for an interesting um sort of yeah cultural evolution in running where people don't learn to fuel until they really have to and then they don't have as much experience to draw on and i think that's something to be mindful of that is really interesting. I never thought about it that way because like I've all I mainly just have ran my like not my entire life, but like since college and kind of dabbled in cycling over the years. But that does make a lot of sense that like if you're riding longer hours and at more intensity for basically your entire life, you're just gonna know how to fuel better versus just like going for an hour run with nothing or maybe maybe some water or something, but not anything substantial. You learn the hard way. I when I started cycling, I went out with a group on a Saturday morning. There I was about 16 or 17. These guys were all in there. 20s 30s 40s they've been riding for years and they they used to take me out we'd do 40 or 50 or 60 miles and they would drag my sorry ass home for the last 40 minutes because i was blown because all i would take is like a banana or something like that and gradually then they they start talking to you and informally educating you and you realize you know you're watching them and they're they're taking bars and gels and eating and keeping top up and you just yeah you just get schooled in it and i just don't think that happens for runners for the majority of the time i think it's 
you know, it's just something you're not experienced to until you jump up to the ultra, the, the marathon plus scene. And then it's a little bit late. So it's, it's, it's a really, if you are a runner who's coming up through the distances, it's not cheating to eat on some of your moderate to longer runs. It's actually probably really good practice for later on. Yeah, I definitely agree, especially if you're training a lot and let's say you're going to double that day or have a big workout the following day. Like It's very important to like not just do a fasted run because you can do it, but because it's going to benefit you the next day if you take carbohydrates during that shorter run. Yeah, yeah. what you eat in that run is actually, it may not particularly benefit that run, but it will definitely benefit your recovery and your ability to go again later. Yeah, definitely. And I guess that implies to like hydration and um, everything too. It's not just carbs or not just hydration, but like all these factors can play into the following day. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember, and, and again, I remember learning this quote unquote, the hard way as a young triathlete, like going on training camp for the first time when all of a sudden you you go from probably doing a, a decent training load at home but suddenly you're doing like at least double the training load when you go away on a dedicated training camp and if you weren't i learned first training camp if if you weren't constantly eating between sessions then you were going to blow out later in the week and and i think those those kind of lessons just yeah if you if you've not experienced really high training loads or or that kind of thing you don't you don't need to learn those things the hard way these days there's enough information and education out there and and just just get on the fueling and hydration hype a bit earlier definitely it was interesting like a couple of weeks before i guess it was three or four weeks before states um i was at the grand canyon with hayden and dan jones and they did a big training camp where they dropped into the canyon like five times i think that week which is pretty big like it's a, it's a lot of intensity and a lot of like hard running but it was interesting to just observe them the entire time like i didn't do the same amount of mileage as them but just being there and watching like how much they ate every day was like it was pretty impressive like i don't know just watching that like 100 and what 30 mile weeks or something with like 30 40 000 feet of vert in the sun and the heat and at moderate altitude as well like just I guess it just shows like how important fueling is. Like it's not just during your run because they fueled the entire time during the runs, but then also before and after, and then again, and then again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, both of those guys do a great working with other experienced people like, like our team, you know, to try and do that. So for, for Hayden in particular, over the last year, we've spent a lot of time breaking down exactly what he eats and drinks in every single race, recording it, commenting on it and feeding it back to him. So that, that, those carb fluid and sodium numbers can evolve and he can really understand them and if people are interested in that specifically all of hayden's races from last year are on our website in the case studies section and you can go in there and see exactly what he what he ate what he drank how it went his comments on it and it's it's a very valuable resource actually it's interesting because i he went out to to england with you guys and did a bunch of testing i don't remember when was it like last year at some point or something and like yeah. he it was cool to watch it just on social media. But then once he got home, he called me and we talked about it. And it was just pretty fascinating, like how you guys were able to replicate Western states, like on a treadmill essentially, and go through all his nutrition and hydration and everything. And like, and he was pumped about it. And it was just, it was really cool to see, like, I guess running or runners starting to take that more seriously versus just kind of winging it, which was like we discussed prior. Like this is how it was in the past, but now it's getting a lot more serious and and precise. Yeah, definitely. That was with Jamie Pugh and um, Robbie Britton who organized that. So physiologist at Liverpool John Moore's University and Robbie's Hayden's coach and 
I went up to sort of lightly get involved with that because we were helping him with the with the the drink and and gel products and stuff. But it was totally fascinating to see what they were doing and the detail that they went into it with. And you know, it's yeah, it is amazing how far the sport has come along because ultra runners would almost have, I think ultra runners from 15 or 20 years ago would have almost turned their nose up at stepping, stepping in a lab, you know, but now it's, it's kind of what you need to do if you want to get competitive edge a lot of the time. Yeah, definitely. And like, I think it was yesterday, the day before I was talking to my girlfriend about that, like she runs professionally and we were talking about just how like, like these minute differences, like maybe for like a, a back of the packer, don't make a difference. Like, a, like 0.5% off your time. Like, yeah, maybe it's a lot of time, but it's really not that big of a difference in your placing. But for an elite athlete, specifically in cycling, but also running out too, like like a half a second or a second can be the difference between winning and losing. And it's it's pretty wild. So like all these things do matter. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I was just kind of thinking um, briefly, like I was talking to Zach Bitter, who's known for like low carb um, running, like he's all about it and stuff. But um, we did a podcast with him like a year ago or something. And he was talking about how, like there was a study and I don't remember exactly what it said, but it was something about how upping your carb intake can actually decrease your rate of perceived exertion. So like having more carbohydrates on runs can just make them feel easier, even if it's just a mental thing. So like, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. I don't know what, I don't know what study that is specifically, but I do know that there's been, there have been studies where they've proven that even if you don't ingest carbohydrates, but if you just swish them in, you swish a, a sugar-based drink in your mouth and spit it out, then you can run faster because, you, and the theory is that it sort of takes the the mental breaks off because your brain registers the sugar in the mouth. It assumes sugar's on its way, you know, to the muscles and it's going to help. And therefore it can even improve your performance from a, um, a mental perspective or from a, a psychological perspective even if you don't actually ingest the carbohydrate and I, I definitely know just just from my own experience that yeah sometimes when when you are feeling a bit low in a run or whatever if you if you put a chew or a gel in your mouth and if you are a little bit low on blood sugar we're hardwired you know to taste that sugar and it it tastes fantastic when you need it it's your body knows what's what's coming and I, I do think that that is that is undoubtedly going to reduce your perceived exertion of how hard you feel like you're running because we all know on the flip side that if you go into something a little old, your mood and your attitude towards that session can deteriorate really really quickly um you know i actually literally experienced that this morning for some reason i, I was swimming this morning i swam with the group i normally do and i had i did all the things i normally do but maybe i didn't eat enough yesterday or whatever but i remember driving to the pool this morning this is at like 5 30 a.m and i was thinking ah, probably i don't normally eat before i swim but i was like oh, i'm quite hungry i wonder if i've got anything in the van or you know and i didn't have any food and i thought well it's only an hour i'll get in and do it but literally like 35 40 minutes into the session i was hating life and normally i really enjoy those workouts and stuff and i got out and it was the first thing i was i was straight to the cafe i was straight in amongst the croissants and the pastries and that which is just not normally what i do but clearly my body was telling me like you are under fueled and once i've had that 15 minutes later i feel fine again but it's, it, it is amazing how much that kind of stuff can affect you mentally. So you soon know, we always, we always say to athletes um, as a thing to remember in races is like low mood, go for food, you know, because if you start to feel grumpy and grouchy and stuff, it's often a sign that your blood sugar level is dropping. 
Yeah, someone once told me they said like never DNF a race before eating or before sleeping. So like if you're feeling grumpy and like you're not happy about it, whatever, just like eat something and sit on it for a minute and kind of see where things go from there. Yeah, I think it's good advice. Yeah. Well, like as we start kind of wrapping up here, let's talk a little bit about altitude and how that can affect hydration and fueling. Because like I was, um, I guess it's August now, but I was at Hard Rock 100 this year, which is like a notoriously high event here in the, in the States between like 9,000 and 14,000 feet. And I think there's two different camps when it comes to fueling at altitude. It kind of seems like some people are, yeah, like eat a bunch of carbohydrates because you need them because you're at altitude and you need to drink more and everything. But then also like I've been told, and this is from like people that like sell ketones, like exogenous ketone companies that your body burns ketones better at altitude. So like, how does, I guess, how, I guess, what's the proper way to fuel at altitude for racing? Because if you are, you're at higher altitude, so maybe you are burning more, more calories and stuff. So like in, in your opinion, what is the best way to fuel when you're at an altitude event or even just training at altitude? Yeah, I think so when you're, when you're at altitude, obviously it's, it's a stressor on the body and, and in general, when you're going at a steady pace, not flat out, but when you are going at the kind of pace you'd be doing at, at an ultra endurance event, your heart rate is going to be elevated for the speed and effort that you're putting in. Your breathing rate is going to be elevated and the your lactate levels, if you took lactate markers in the blood, they're often going to be elevated as well. So there's kind of more anaerobic metabolism going on, all of which points to the fact you're probably burning more calories and burning more carbohydrate. And so I know that from talking to a lot of the cyclists that we work with who train at altitude, the the more scientifically minded ones will often add somewhere between sort of 10 and 20 grams of carbs per hour to their steady training rides to compensate for that. So just not a massive increase, but an acknowledgement that they're probably burning more energy per hour. And if the hours are accumulating as they are on a training camp or whatever, then adding that in is useful. Also, quite often a recommendation I've heard is to add another 200 to 250 calories of carbohydrates to your daily intake, just generally your diet at altitude. So I think the whilst I, I don't know anything really about the ketone side of things, in general, all of the advice I've heard and, and what I've observed elite athletes doing is just turning the carbohydrate dial up a little bit at altitude versus at sea level for the same effort because you're going to burn a little bit more energy. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess would that apply to hydration as well, where if you're at altitude and it's cooler, drier air, you maybe don't feel as thirsty, but you're still sweating a lot and losing a lot of um, like water, right? Yeah, and potentially it's even more, it puts even more pressure on hydration than it does on energy because of those reasons you've mentioned. First one is that you you breathe faster because you're trying to ventilate harder to get more oxygen and carbon dioxide out. And so with that increased ventilation, you lose more, you've got greater respiratory losses of water. That's exacerbated by the fact that the air is often drier. And so some of the estimates that I've seen say you probably need to be increasing your fluid intake by about 50%. So if you're, let's say you were usually taking 16 ounces an hour, you might be up at 24 ounces an hour or something like that. And then along with that, because you're taking in more fluid, you might want to increase the amount of electrolytes as well. So in general, I would say both fueling and hydration, the, the requirements are going to go up in like for like conditions that and paces that you'd find at lower altitudes. I guess with the hydration, the thing that might counterbalance that is that if it's significantly cooler, 
then you you might you might exhibit lower sweat losses. That's not always the case at altitude, but obviously the higher you go up, generally the cooler it gets. So you're unlikely to see the really hot and humid conditions that you'd see at, at a race like you know Western States, or even worse, some of the races you get maybe in like Florida or places like that. So that that might offset it, but generally, yeah, carbs are up, fluids and electrolytes are up at altitude. Yeah, there was a nutritionist I was talking, or I wasn't talking, I was listening to, and she was mentioning that essentially that like, yeah, you might need more more carbs, but also um, like liquid carbs might be like the best bet because if you're trying to like chew, say at altitude, like chewing on some gummies that are kind of hard might be kind of impossible, or pretzels or something like, and maybe there's some carbs in there, but the amount of time it takes and basically like. She was saying that like you're not able to breathe as well if you're chewing on some potato chips or pretzels versus just drinking carbohydrates. It's like so that's probably a better fueling option at altitude, anyways. Yeah, I think that's probably a good point. The only the only time I think where it's well, not the only time, but the counterpoint to that sometimes is that when you're doing a really long event, I don't disagree with people using liquid carbs because a lot of people do so successfully, but I think you always want to reserve a little bit of your fluid intake for water or water plus electrolytes because you want to be able to taste what those things taste like and not and not just increase your fluid intake all the time if you want more carbs, you know. So that can lead sometimes to fluid overload if if you need if you want more carbs but the only way to get them is liquid then you are tying yourself to having more liquid all the time. Whereas if you have, you know, water and electrolytes and then gels, say, if you want more carbs, you can take more gels and a little sip of water. You don't have to have loads more fluid or vice versa. You can kind of tune those things a little bit more. So liquid carbs are definitely a a solid option. And most of the athletes that we work with will incorporate some liquid carbs into their regime. But I think where... There's definitely some of our competitors who make liquid carb products only have pushed the message quite hard around, you know, you can basically survive only on liquid carbs when you're doing an event. And I think that's not always a safe strategy because you can't then decouple your electrolytes, fluids and um, and, and calories if you need to at any point. Exactly. And I think that's, that's a very good point and a very good thing to wrap up on. But I was talking to a friend about this the other day that like, like basically your feeling strategy should be based around the event that you're doing. So say like you're doing bad water versus like a cold, um, I don't know, a cold hundred miler or something like you're probably not drinking as much, maybe not. So maybe I have a different strategy there, like maybe more, more solid type foods like gels versus if you're drinking a ton, you can drink a lot more carbohydrates. Um, I don't know. That's how I think about it. So like, I guess like every event is different as far as feeling goes. Absolutely. And I, I would say like as a rough rule of them as well, the more the colder it is, the more concentrated you can make your drinks because you are going to drink less of them. So you can get more calories in a concentrated drink. And then that, that's what we see a lot of the cycling teams do as well. When it gets hotter, you tend to dilute the drinks more and more until you get to the point where it's like bad water or something like that. And you're going to drink a lot of water or a lot of water plus electrolytes only because the amount of that you're putting down is so high. And then you're just taking in the carbs alongside it because you want to manage those things really carefully and independently. There's no way you can mash them all together in a really hot event. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's a good thing to to wrap up on here, Andy. Like, thanks for taking the time to, to chat about this. Like, I think hydration and fueling is something that a lot of people like in the running world specifically, maybe not so much in cycling, just kind of, kind of play by ear and wing it. Um, but I guess as we see like people, if they want to get better at something, they have to take a little more seriously. Yeah, definitely. And I think if our, our mission is to help people do that. So if anyone's listened to this and is interested, 
on our website, we've got sort of tools and free resources. So we've got a, a fueling and hydration planner that can help you work out for free how much fluid, how much sodium, how much carbohydrate you might need for a specific event based on things like your body size, the environment, the time you're going to be out there. And we've got a knowledge hub on there as well with loads of blogs, like the one I mentioned on cramping. And we've got them on preloading with electrolytes. We've got them on how much dehydration you can tolerate in an ultra and those kind of things. So uh, you know, if anyone's listening to this and thinks they want to learn a bit more, then if they hit our website, I'm sure they'll find some some things to read on there. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks for the time again and um, appreciate it. And uh, maybe I'll see you guys at States next year. I hope so. Yeah. Be good. <laughs> yeah. Let's hope so. Let's go out for a run or something. Maybe a ride. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Love to. All right. Yeah. Thanks again, Andy. Have a good evening. Well, you too. Oh, thanks.